0: You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. There's a scene in one of C.S. Lewis's novels. It's called the, the, the novels The Great Divorce. And it's the, the whole novel is describing the afterlife. Some of you may be familiar with it. You know, some of you grew up with uh, C.S. Lewis, and you know, people quote him like he's Paul or something. So he, you might you might feel that connected to him. Um, and and but, but this this scene that he had describes the afterlife, what com- the life that comes after this one, is, is so unique. I wanted to read you a paragraph from it. Here, the character enters heaven, as it were, and describes the experience. Um, who who has a good like literary voice? And someone someone with that kind of voice, read this out loud. I see. Now there's some there's some self-assessment there, and then self-confidence too. So, it, so it could be, or self-consciousness. Oh, you're volunteering, Mariko. I I take it. I second it. The grove of huge cedars to my right seemed attractive, and I entered it. Walking proved difficult. The grass, hard as diamonds to my unsubstantial feet, made me feel as if I were walking on wrinkled rock, and I suffered pains like those of a mermaid in Hans Andersen. A bird ran across in front of me, and I envied it. It belonged to that country, and it was as real as the grass. It could bend the stalks and spatter itself in I, I, I favor his writing for a variety of reasons, and I think that there is a... He's selected every word that's supposed to be there, so I sense some care with his writing. Um, unlike Tolkien, on the other hand. Never mind. But it's not a content. Well, they were friends, right? Tolkien writes these long things that you need an editor, you know. And C.S. Lewis is so much more succinct. Anyway, the grass, the bird, they have more substance than this person, this man that's walking about heaven. They're, uh, They're so real, they're harder than the man, right? The grass hurts to walk on. The man is less real. The man is in fact less substantial, more abstract, more ethereal. And it's it's interesting because it portrays the afterlife, the life that comes after this one, as one that's more substantive than this life. That that the abstraction, that the uh, immaterialism exists now and something much more real follows now. And I, I think it's unique because we usually think of the afterlife when we think of like ghosts and souls in things that have less substance than we do, but in fact, it's the opposite. You know, there's a there's a, a there's a material reality to the resurrection of Jesus. It actually makes us more real, more like ourselves. And as Christians, we're bringing about that more fully real and known place into the world, just as we're coming into our own fullness. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a chance to live into the fullness, living into our true new selves, becoming more of our true selves, and helping the world and the people around us become theirs too. So this, this, the, the, the idea is the resurrection changes everything, and it changes how we see ourselves, too, how we interact with ourselves, too, just as, just, just, just as we bring about that new reality <coughs> together. It moves us towards really being ourselves and doing what God has given us to do. Sometimes people make a distinction between who we are and who we're becoming as the difference between true and false self, or you might say old and new self. The New Testament, which is like the second main section of the Bible, is full of descriptions of the new humanity, the new creation, that, that Jesus is ushering in, that Jesus is inaugurating through his life and his death and his resurrection. And so, so there's something new we're going for. And it's right there in the oldest texts we have. But it's also rooted in contemporary understanding of our being, of who we are. You know, it's grounded in some psychological understanding too. Those of us who have participated in psychotherapy, whether at Circle Counseling, our uh, our excellent counseling center, I can think I can I think I can do some uh, advertising for it. <laughs> or if you've gone elsewhere, you might be familiar with the idea that of who you were and who you are becoming, who you are now and who you wanna be, where you are now and where you're going. There's a movement happening, there's an unlocking happening within you. Many things in form are false or shadow or old self, and and some of them might be intrinsic to us, like they're really part of our uh, makeup and it's very hard for us to undo it, like we're born with some of that. But others, other, other factors might be a matter of circumstance. Um, the circumstance that you're in in your life now might bring about your false or shadow self. And changing it helps. Context matters. Or it could be a matter of uh, how you grew up. You know, um, what our parents were like and so on. And our upbringing affecting us um, often feels intrinsic. You know, the old... Uh, the old discussion between a nature or nurture, right? You 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 may have heard these two ideas that are really hard to distinguish at some point, especially when you are looking at a very young child about how their experiences are formed very much by their earliest, the earliest moments of their life, the earliest memories that they have. So it's important, I think, for us to name our shadow self for what it is and becoming aware of it and not just avoiding it, not just uh, suppressing it, not just ignoring it, because the risk we run when we don't encounter it is that we just ignore it and it surfaces unexpectedly in places we didn't think it could or we didn't expect it to. Maybe you're familiar with this and you have some story to share about this. I think we actually have to wrestle with it. And we have to know that it's real so that we can move into our whole self, our true self, our new self, our resurrected self. What I'm saying is who we are now isn't who we're becoming. That we all have a best self that is unique to who we are. That we can operate out of, and some days you operate out of it more than other days. And, 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 and in stress or in um, difficult circumstances, you operate less out of it. Maybe you know yourself that well that you know that, you know, or maybe you don't, and I'm confusing you. Paul, now I'm quoting Paul, not C.S. Lewis, Paul says that the center of our true self is love in this famous wedding passage, 1 Corinthians 13, and it might be embroidered at somebody's house that you know, like in a, on a plaque in the bathroom or something like that. <laughs> um, and I think it's an appropriate passage for, for a marriage since it deals with darkness and light. So I think it's, that's appropriate. We face that when we're in intimate community, intimate relationships. It's also inappropriate because he isn't talking about the kind of love between married people, but specifically he's talking about a bigger love that we all share as the body. Something else is happening. But here's the end of the famous passage I I, I want want to think about and read through together. Someone else. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease as for knowledge it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully. Even as I have been fully known, and now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. Paul's talking about his own growth from a child to an adult. And the, the, the world that we see dimly in now, one translation says, through a glass darkly. And we will see more clearly soon. We're working on awakening ourselves to the reality of what God is doing in the world and also in us. And we're also acknowledging that we're not children anymore. We're adults. And the key here and th- th- that I want to focus on isn't that the adult only exists in their true self. But the adult is capable of of, of grappling with not just the light, but the darkness too. Not just your true self, but also your shadow self. Not just your best self, but also your worst self. And they work together and they hold each other in some sense. In fact, I think it's a childish thing to do, to see the world as dark or light or black or white. right? And you wrestle with your false self, the, that self that you try to hide from others. That's a good way to know what it is for you. What do you, what do you try to keep from other people. Or perhaps the one you try to show off to others, that could be your false self. That self that you regret being when you lash out in anger against your loved ones. Or that self that, uh, that embarrasses you as you floodlight your uh, work acquaintances with too many personal details about your life. In a moment of... Uh, of uh, lowered inhibition your life in Christ won't erase that it won't erase that self and you shouldn't condemn yourself when it emerges again because it's part of you in fact without darkness and shadow it's hard to see the light or navigate anything at all we need the contrast to be able to navigate I'm not heralding both as Um, true. But they both exist. And we shouldn't ignore the other because we really like the other one or want to be the other one. Does that make sense? So the adult can hold both, can assess both, can understand where they want to go without dismissing one entirely. We're in a growth process. We're growing together. Your true self, your real self, the self that's made of harder grass, so to speak, is where we're moving, it's where we're fully known. You aren't trapped in your old self, even though it will visit you sometimes or it'll always be with you. Richard Rohr, who is a, uh, a monk out in the desert in the, in the Southwest United States, talks a lot about darkness and light. And uh, I, I wanna, I'm gonna, we're, gonna read, we're reading a few passages here. Here's Richard Rohr, he says, Darkness is always present alongside the light. Pure light blinds and shadows are required for our seeing. We know the light most fully in contrast with its opposite, the dark. There is something that can be known by going through the night sea journey into the belly of the whale from which we are spit up on an utterly new shore. He'll go on. Few Christians have been taught to hold the Pascal mystery of both death and resurrection and how to acknowledge and address the dark side of the church. As a result, many people who would formally call themselves Christians have thrown out the baby with the bathwater, rejecting Christianity with some dualistic all-or-nothing thinking that immature religion taught them in the first place. He kind of writes that way all the time. So if you feel like he's being too pointed... That's how he writes. You know, he always he's very self-assured, you know, which I, I can appreciate. But that's Richard Rohr. That's what we're holding on to. Our true self, our new self, our real self is the one that we can acknowledge. No, it's not perfect without condemning ourselves while also moving into what God has next for us. You can hold both while still moving towards the light, while still moving to your true self. That's the trajectory we're going in. And he even says a dark experience which, which plummets you into, this, into the sea, into the belly of the whale, can resurrect you in a new way. Isn't that exactly the story of Jesus? That he had to encounter death in order to be brought to life in a new way. And so there's something to be said about dying to your old self and living into your new self. For me, my shadow self is one that's full of shame. Shame at the prospect of anyone actually getting to know me. And instead of being vulnerable, I front with something else. So I preoccupy myself with getting people to like me on the outside so that I don't have to wrestle with the fact that I don't think they'll like me if they really knew me. And that's how I work personally. You know, it's not, that's the false self. And I can share that with you because that isn't the totality of who I am and where I've grown and how I'm living my life. But I'm familiar enough with it that I know when it comes up again. You know, there's this thing that happens in me, right? Shame about people getting to know me, trying to get them to like, like me, not know me, and those are different things. And then subsequently feeling unknown and lonely as a result and entitled to being known since so many people like me. You know, it's, it's, and it's, 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 uh, it messes with you. It's complicated for me. You know, my true self is the one that doesn't compete, have to compete to be known and loved, but rests in the love of God, the love of my family the love of my friends, the love of my community. That's the real challenge. And some days it's easier than others. You know, I'll never rid myself of the old self. Nor should I totally cut it off. In fact, it is occasionally useful. But I should know that it's a part of who I am and allow my awareness of it to keep me from being surprised when it comes up again. What the resurrection promises me and promises us is energy, capacity, interest, the, and, and, and the assuredness of the finality of our completion of transformation. We don't just become new people, we become whole people, complete people who we're meant to be. And through the person of Jesus, we have an example of that newness that we're achieving. I'm a Christian, and so I have a Christian framework. To become more like myself, I become more like Jesus, and in becoming more like Jesus, I become more like myself. I think this approach is not very easy to sort through because we have so many ways to define who we are. On one hand, you might be thinking well, I'm not a Christian, so I don't know what it really means to be like Jesus more and what that has to do with me. Or you might be skeptical of the very idea. And of course, the more orthodox among us might say, you becoming more like yourself really has nothing to do with you becoming more like Jesus. And so, if I'm rubbing uh, two sides here, that's okay. Like if I'm rubbing you the wrong way. And it's, 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 you can live in some tension, for at least for now. This kind of self-reflection and introspection that I'm moving you to do has actually come under fire among the more, uh, among more doctrinally-centered people. But make no mistake that the mystics of Christianity, the ones who have self-reflected, the ones who have done some introspection, the ones who we've, uh, I guess, canonized on our trans-historical blog. It's not much of a canon, but it's what we have. Um, they're the ones that have actually corrected the Pope's errors, if that's what you're thinking about. So I don't, feel, I don't fear the possibility of uh, falling into heresy, so to speak, because I'm reflecting on what it means to be my true self. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that. I have four suggestions for how we can discover our true self. The first one is to uh, find community, to stay in community. And you, I, I'm suggesting you do this for two reasons. First, in a community, in a conflictive communal setting, you can practice forgiveness on yourself and forgiveness of others. You can practice seeking repentance and reconciliation. That's an important way to to be able to handle yourself as you navigate your former and your new self. But even as you navigate our sin-infested world, you'll certainly encounter a conflict and behavior Um, that will bring about your your not best self. Let's just say it that way. In that way you can practice forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. What I'm saying is community will bring out your worst self. And that's why it's a good context to live in to get to your best self. The community is here for the ill and for the fragile. That's like all of us. We're all that way. It's not a specific group of people. We get in touch with our illness and our uh, fragility. That means we need to be extra careful to practice reconciliation and forgiveness because we are so susceptible to pain. And secondly, community is really good at letting you see yourself for who you are. You know, we're not always good at delivering hard truths about who we are to ourselves. So developing friendships where we can be candid and trust helps with this. You know, your friends probably know you as well as you do, and they can tell you a thing or two about yourself. And, and, and that's, that's a good setting to live in. You want those kind of people in your life. Your friends are... And, but, but nevertheless, your friends are still like a mirror dimly, dimly lit. We're still just getting a vague idea about who we are and where we're going. More than just find it, I want us to make the community together. Don't just consume it be a community maker help us build the thing together you know and don't rely on the super capacious uh, people that actually toil to keep the thing afloat and together to to uh, offer you the bounty of it you know make it together you know we're making something together so so help us with that and then participate this is connected to that idea participate in mission in the mission of the church in the mission god has given you and you do so because you often find out who you are and who you want to be when you're living with a purpose. You discover how the world has tainted you too when you serve in a mission to make the world better. You, you, you become in touch with um, how the world has sustained you, what power and privilege you hold when you serve someone less like you or less fortunate than you. And you discover how liberating Sharing your faith can be and how needed and important you are to what we're doing, what God is doing in the world. You learn that you're a vital part of what God is doing, and what God is doing is a vital part of you. But you can't just do it with people and do it with your work. Be in solitude, be in silence. Sometimes you can study in this time. When I go on a retreat, I usually bring a book or, or a, f- a few books and your main work here is not to fill your mind but rather to empty it let the feelings and thoughts go so that you can become more like God and like yourself here's how uh, do I have Martin Laird here's how Martin Laird puts it Martin Laird is one of my favorite guys Villanova professor so he's a local guy too I like that about him he writes this, according to the ancient theory of art, the practice of sculpting has less to do with fashioning a figure of one's choosing than with being able to see in the stone the future waiting to be liberated. The sculpture imposes nothing but only frees what is held, in, held captive in stone. The practice of contemplation is something like this. It does not work by means of addition or acquisition. But by release <clears throat> chiseling away thought shackled illusions of separation from God I'm kind of a thought shackled guy so this is really helpful for me you know so go, in, go into silence go into solitude so that you can let go of things you might think of your new self and your best self as hidden within you something that needs to be chiseled away something that needs to be seen in a less complex environment. And then finally, this, this may be enough for you, but if it's not, you can use other means. Some of us have found psychotherapy, as I mentioned earlier, to be very useful for this purpose, or counseling offers um, affordable counseling to you if that's what you need. Spiritual direction is another option. We have spiritual directors among us. And maybe, maybe, maybe one day we'll write a whole list of them too so you can see them. And you don't have to just know them. And at this level, you're paying for it. You're paying for services, right? So that's a a commitment for sure. And I think it's worth it. But to be honest, some of our cell leaders are ready to meet you right where you are and to care for you and give you concentrated time. There can be a spiritual friend that helps you with this. You don't have to go to the professional. And in some circumstance, your pastor's available, too. We really want to see ourselves, our cell leaders, as pastors in their own right. So start there. And see if you can't get to becoming more of who God has made you. And be humble enough to flex in the ways that you need to in order to grow into your fullness. Gracious enough to let yourself be okay as you necessarily experience your old and former self. The hope of resurrection is that failure doesn't defeat us because the ultimate failure, death, has been conquered. So we don't work it all out perfectly. We're committed to leaving childish things behind us even as we see through a glass darkly. We're committed to letting go of our former self a mere facsimile of our new self, of our true self. And we're, we're, we are ready to walk on hard the hard grass and uh, let the dew spring up around us, just like the uh, bird in the passage we read. Let's say a prayer and then do some talk back, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for being here and with us. Keep helping us to follow you so that we might become more like our true self, more like who we're called to be, who we long to be, who we know we can be. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.